The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, great name, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, also a great name, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, and to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who had passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would not destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come and then the darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I should have practiced that beforehand. Um, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is called Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain at the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his last and he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were many also other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Uh, We are in uh, a section of Mark where we're kind of, we're coming up to the the climactic sort of moment of Jesus' life. Uh, If you've been following along with us for a while... Uh, we've kind of done Mark basically systematically over two years. So last year we sort of did the first half for a number of weeks. Then we've started this year all the way up to we're going to finish with the resurrection next week on Easter Sunday. And Mark has a particular uh, point that he wants to make. He's kind of got this purpose behind why he's writing this historical narrative of Jesus' life. Uh, and he wants people to see the truth of who Jesus really is. And then he wants to call those who would see that to then come and follow him, to put their faith in him and trust him. And in this particular section, what he does is he actually kind of creates for us uh, four main ironies. And Mark uses irony as as another way of kind of linguistically writing in a way that would draw readers in to kind of see See something that he's saying without actually saying it. He's a very, very clever writer. If you, if you read Mark or you've been listening to this series, um, you see all these creative and, and incredible ways in which he writes, which I, I absolutely love and find fascinating. But before we dig in, I want to remind you of an important song written in 1996 by Alanis Morissette titled Ironic. And for those of you who weren't yet born, just listen to this. This is amazing. 
I'm going to read through the first three verses and then all of those who like, were living it up in the 90s, uh, who were really influenced by Alanis Morissette, you can then sing along with me the great chorus, okay? And I expect you to sing. Verse 1 goes like this, an old man turned 98, he won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay, to death row pardon two minutes too late, and isn't it ironic, don't you think? Verse 2, Mr. Play It Safe was afraid to fly, he packed his suitcase and kissed his kids goodbye. He waited his whole life to take that flight, and as the plane crashed down, he thought, well, isn't this nice? And isn't it ironic, don't you think? Verse 3, a traffic jam when you're already late, a no-smoking sign on your cigarette break. Definitely written in 96. (laughs) It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. It's meeting the man of my dreams and then meeting his beautiful wife. And isn't it ironic, don't you think? Chorus, and it's like... Rain! Your wedding day, thanks Haley. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice. Just didn't take. And who would have thought? Figured, right? And the greatest irony of this iconic song in 1996 is none of these are ironies. They're just inconveniences. So if you, if you understand the word ironic, it's actually the most ironic song ever written. And in fact, 20 years later... When Alanis Morissette is being interviewed, she actually highlights the amount of pain the song has caused her because every time she would go to a concert or sing the thing or do a performance, people would remind her that none of these are ironies. <laughs> so it's quite a funny thing. Mark uses ironies. And there are four that he wants us to see today. So I'm going to walk through these four pretty quickly. But these are really, really profound when we think about them. Number one is that the one who is mocked as king is king. From the very beginning of Mark's account, he wants to set this premise that the one I'm introducing you to, the one that I'm writing about, is the king. He really is the king. So he starts off the very, very first words of Jesus in chapter 1. He says, the time is fulfilled. This is Jesus preaching. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. In this particular scene, we saw it last week and now we see it twice, uh, again through sort of this, this passage, uh, is the fact that they are, they are basically calling him out on this claim that he is the king of the Jews. Pilate last week, the governor, asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, yes, it is as you say. And so again, at uh, the end of last week, there's a section uh, from verse 16. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So again, they're mocking him. They're making him look and appear like a king, and they began to salute him. They're mocking. It's irony. Hail the king of the Jews. And then here we see in verse 25, it says, In the third hour, When they crucified him, an inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So everybody is mocking Jesus, but here lies the irony. Mark knows. His original audience that he's writing to now knows. And those of you who now live in the 21st century and are believers of Jesus, we all now know that he truly is the king of the world. 
Not just of the Jews, but actually the entire universe. Matthew 28 actually says, Jesus is speaking to his disciples right at the end of their life, and he says, all authority, excuse me, in heaven and on earth. In other words, there is no place in which I am not the king. I am the ultimate king. Now, for those of us who live in the 21st century Western world, this idea of king and kingship and kingdoms, is, it's a little bit foreign. We kind of get some idea of it, but really it just doesn't match up to our sort of moral, cultural values. In our Australian context, we don't want anybody to be the king. We want to be the king. We want to rule our own lives. We don't like the fact that we have governments telling us what to do. We don't like the fact that we have teachers telling us what to do. And if you're in my home, we don't like the fact that we have parents that tell us what to do. But the reality is, is that there is a king. And his name is Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is not a dominating, enforcing, hard taskmaster king. That he's actually a good king. I love the fact that Mark shows us this throughout this story. We've seen it a number of times, but when you look at the fact that Jesus is king, Mark doesn't want to just say that he is king. He wants to show you what type of king so that you would trust his authority, that you would follow him and put your faith in him because not only is he a king, he's a good king. I have many friends and maybe you're in the room and you're also not a Christian, but I have many friends that aren't Christians that they would say that they're probably not atheistic but agnostic. And one of their big questions is, look, I think I believe in something, but I just don't know whether he's good. I could believe in God if you could prove to me he was good. And this is where we see the ultimate goodness of the king. So there's this time that Mark highlights when his disciples come up to him and ask, hey, can you... Can you kind of give me a special seat on your right hand, your left hand, where you give us like the, the moment, you know? And they're, they're really asking, like, can I have a secretary of state? Can I be the minister for defense or whatever? They're asking for the prominent roles of a political kingdom. And Jesus is like, boys, you don't understand what you are asking. I don't know if you can drink what I'm about to drink. And then he goes on this, this rant, and it's a beautiful rant, where he says, listen, the way that the, the culture, the way that your current world uses their, their sort of influence and power as kings, is they rule over and they lord over. And he says, that's not how it works in my kingdom. It's not a top-down leadership. It is a bottom-up leadership. The king of the universe will come and lay his life down. And then at the end of that particular passage, you get to one of the most beautiful lines in all of Mark. Mark 10.45 For the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way he sums it up is, listen, I am the ultimate king. And as that ultimate king, I'm going to lay down my life for the world. Number two, the one who is powerless is powerful. Here's the premise. You can't be king. You can't be who you say you are because if you were who you said you are, we couldn't do this to you. There is no way you can be a king because look how weak you are. And God surely would be with you if you were truly the son of God and the king of the world. He would be with you and he would rescue you from this difficulty, from this suffering. God cannot use this type of weakness. The one who is powerless 
is actually powerful though. And so Mark sort of shows us, he shows us that he was powerless in the fact that he couldn't carry his own cross. So they compelled Simon of Cyrene. It's interesting, if, if you've been with us for a little while, Mark kind of skips over a whole lot, lots of details, often in his count because he's moving very fast, but he, he picks out this guy's name. He reminds us that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, just, just so you know, I've got odds, odds on the Clark baby been named Rufus. That's where I'm putting my money. If there's TAB, there's a bet going on. I'm going for Rufus or Artaxerxes. They're, they're the two. So if you, we've got wages going on at the moment. Um, so, so here's the way that crucifixion would often happen. They would, they would often put the, the vertical piece in. It would be up on the hill. It would already be sort of cemented in or put in the ground. And then the person, after being you know, scourged or whatever, would then have to carry their beam. And Jesus has been so badly beaten that he does not have the strength to actually carry that wooden beam all the way to the point of crucifixion. So he falls under Roman law. You're allowed to ask one person who can come and carry that for you. So they pick Cyrene, this guy, Simon of Cyrene. He mentions his name. He mentions his father because they want this to be like an eyewitness account moment where it's like, hey, listen, you can go and ask him. He did this. But it's to point out that Jesus was so weak. He was powerless he couldn't even carry the beam to the cross. Additionally, he's hanging on the cross, and while there, the soldiers are gambling for his clothes. Now, victims of crucifixion under Roman rule are basically left either completely naked or just in their underwear. It's this idea of just being exposed and shame-filled. It'd be like going to Westfield and as you walk in, someone is hung up there for everyone just to walk past and see. It is a shameful, exposing moment. And this is supposed to be a picture of Jesus who has no hope whatsoever. He is suffering immeasurably. He is shamed intolerably. It's a good word. Should have practiced that one along with Eli, Eli. Jesus is hanging here, powerless, so powerless that people are putting odds on who gets to wear his clothes. And then they mock him that he can't get himself down. Have you ever had someone say something to you that is like so unbelievable about what they have done? And you're like, yeah, sure, of course you, of course you have. I had a, a guy once who I met um, who, in this context of this, this party, was talking about how he was a professional skater. I was like, okay. So I just asked him, like, okay, so what tournaments have you won? And he's like, couldn't tell me tournament names. And at that point in time, I, I was running a youth group, so I knew a lot of the local skating tournaments out at Redcliffe, and I asked him if he'd been to those. He hadn't been to any single tournament. He was out here bragging that he was something, and then he actually couldn't back it up. So then we organized the time to go and skate. Now, I'm no skater, but he wasn't much better than me. Like, I could ollie off stairs only, okay? And it counted as an ollie. For those, most of you are like, oh, what? Okay, good. So we'll move on. <laughs> so this idea of someone says something, they, they claim to be something, and then they can't back it up. So it says this, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Now, normally we wag our fingers, so I don't know what the wagging the head thing is there. It's a little weird. I don't know what's going on. But they say, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down on the cross. 
So Jesus basically has, in their mind, their view, made a claim. I, the king of the Jews, am going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, how many of us know that you can't do that with a small room? You can't do that. Like, we've just been moving things from our office and and changing things, and we've kind of put a little bit of an office in my house. It takes way more than three days just to do something small. And that's in a technologically advanced world in which we live. In Jewish context, you're not allowed to actually have hammers and things on site. You have to have to, the, the bricks would have to be pre-cut and prefabricated and then moved via animals to actually be there. They weren't allowed to bring tools to the actual temple. So it's even worse for them. So they, they looked at this and was like, this is a ridiculous claim. It's offensive. This is the temple. This is our most sacred thing. And you think you can destroy it and rebuild it? So they're offended at him and they think it's ridiculous. And so they are mocking him because you said you could do that, but you can't even get off the cross that we with human hands have put you in. Do you see? And remember, this is Passover time. So there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in the city at the moment. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people all day are just walking past going, this guy said this, he can't even do this. And they are mocking him. The irony is, Jesus didn't actually say that. John 2 tells us that he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. In other words, he was saying, this is something that you will do. You will try to destroy me. You see the irony that Mark wants his readers to see? I never even said that. I didn't say I was going to destroy the temple. I said that you were going to try and destroy the temple and then I would rebuild that temple in three days. So John tells us, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? And John tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, Jesus was predicting that they would crucify him and he was pointing to the fact that he was the ultimate temple. So here they are, mocking his claim. And the irony is is that they are actually enacting his claim. They are actually fulfilling the very words of which he said that they would do. And the temple for the Jews, this is the great meeting place between a holy God and sinful people. The temple is the only hope for anyone who is broken like you and I. That's how they, they viewed it. It is seen as the greatest beauty that they have. And here what Jesus is saying is, listen, here's the irony. I am the temple because I am the perfect meeting place between a holy God and sinful humanity. And I'm going to do something that actually reconnects those two. And you're going to destroy it. And then I'm going to raise myself from the dead. You think I'm powerless. I'm going to enact the greatest powerful moment in human history. What you see as weakness is the greatest strength ever put on display. Because I could call down all the angels, I could get myself off the cross, but I'm restraining my power in order to enact my power and defeat Satan, sin and death and reconnect all humanity back to God. And listen, we can... We can often read this story and because we know the end from the beginning, we can kind of go, 
Yeah, those fools. Those fools. Don't they know? Question. How often do we doubt that God can use weakness to bring about his good plan? Yeah, maybe we don't do this in the moment with Jesus on the cross because we weren't there. But how often do we go through our trials and our tribulations and our suffering like we sung today and go, God can't be in this. God can't work through weakness. God can't work through suffering. God can't work through pain. Yet the greatest moment of God's power is shown in suffering, in pain, in distress. The, the cross of Jesus is not just something that reminds us of what God has done eternally for us, but it's also very practical in the fact that if God can work through that, God can work through anything I go through. And we are tempted when we go through hard times to doubt that, do we not? When we feel lonely, when we feel isolated, when we're not sure about the job, when things are happening with the kids, when things are happening in marriage, when things are happening that are tough and hard, we doubt and we ask, where are you, God? Because I can't see your power in display. This is why the book of Esther is one of the greatest books of the whole Bible. Because God is not mentioned in the book of Esther for a reason. To show you that God is working in the shadows. When you can't see him and you can't feel him and he doesn't look like he's there, he is most there. That's the truth of the gospel. And so maybe you've got some things going on right now. Maybe you're freaked out about this new you know, UK variant. And listen, I'm offended by that. I was born in the UK. How dare you go up, my people? But trust me, God is in control. And the one who seems powerless, seems like his hands and his, his work is absent, is so present right now, doing all the things he needs to do. Number three, the one who can't save himself saves Others. Now, this is the part of the movie, right? This is the part of Marvel when, when it looks like everything is just going to go wrong and they don't have enough strength. And all of a sudden, the Hollywood movie, the, the guy sort of rises up under all of the pressure and all the uncertainty and all of a sudden comes through and is a huge hero. Isn't this what we love? This is the worst Hollywood story ever. There is no massive like breakthrough moment. It's the opposite. Look what they say. 31 says, So all the, also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. And here's the irony. He will not save himself in order to save others. That's the irony. The, the, the very statements that they are making are the very opposite of what is truth. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Here, Jesus shows us his true heroism, the greatness, the absolute greatness. He remains on the cross. This is the greatest act of self-control ever in the history of the world. He remains weak. He denies himself and allows himself to be crucified in order that he would save you and me. Now, if you follow Mark all the way through, Jesus is so intentional. Every single thing Jesus says is on point and exactly how he... He is not at any point out of control in this story. Mark is very, very intentional with showing you that. He knows exactly what Judas is doing. He knows when he's doing it. He knows when his time is. He knows everything that is going on. And he is the one who is actually allowing and orchestrating his perfect plan. And here, Jesus Christ takes the shame that we deserve, the pain 
and death and separation from God that we deserve. So that you and I could have the glory of God, the righteousness of God, the relationship with God. Jesus is giving himself up, not saving himself so he could save you and me. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has lived his life so perfectly so that you don't have to just obey all the rules and get this resume that then you can bring to God and say, see God, I'm good enough. No, Jesus lived our life for us. He lived the perfect life and then he died the death so that you and I don't have to die in that way. We don't have to be separated from God and then he raises again to new life. So Jesus here is actually doing something for you and me. So now our little wee bitty sort of resumes. For some of us, it's kind of like there's a few good things. If you're more like me, there's a whole lot sort of in the, <laughs> down here. It's like, oh, the resumes are gone. What he does is he actually gives us Jesus' resume, which is nothing but stacks of perfect obedience to the Father. And then when you and I stand before God, we just go, we're with Jesus. Jesus dies so he could save. And number four, the one who is forsaken creates a new family. Verse 33 kind of creates this picture of darkness. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land till the ninth hour. So this is 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Darkness comes. We don't know in what form. It's, you know, a lot of commentators say it's probably just a whole lot of clouds and got really, really dark. It's this picture throughout the, the Old Testament. When, when darkness happens, it's all about the judgment of God. It's all about displeasure of God. So you see this multiple times throughout the Old Testament, darkness coming over the land, darkness coming over the land. So here is Jesus on the cross dying, and then this darkness comes over, and then at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this idea that Jesus is experiencing abandonment, rejection. He is being forsaken. He's been rejected by his people. He's a man without a country. He's been sacrificed to political expediency by the Roman government. He's a victim of injustice by the Jews. He's been abandoned by his closest friends who are trying to save their own skins. And here darkness is covering the land to say, All of that is nothing in comparison to the fact that the Father is now judging sin upon His own Son. And God is, in one sense, displeased. And Jesus has sin of the whole world put on Him, and He is forsaken. Again, intentionally. Why? Because in three days, He's going to rise again and bring life to a brand new family of people, so that anyone who can uh, and would believe would come and be a part of this incredible worldwide family. If you're here and you're a Christian, listen, there are billions of people a part of this family right now. There are billions of people who are giving up their Sundays and not going to the beach and not going and having coffee, who are gathering together to celebrate the fact that Jesus died, Jesus was forsaken, so that we could become sons and daughters of the King of the universe. We might feel like we're this small bunch of insignificant people doing something that is culturally abnormal, but that is not the case. 33,000 Chinese people a day are believing in this. We're hearing of Sudanese, Iranians all over the place of the Middle East coming to faith in their thousands. We are actually not in the minority. We are in 
What's the opposite of minority? Majority. Thank you. Isn't it ironic? It's like rain. Having a moment. Look, it goes on and says, and some bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Wait, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And then Jesus, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a picture of the fact that God has now made a way for any and all to walk into the presence of God. No more priest. No more animal sacrifices. Jesus is the sacrifice. That's awesome. You don't have to wait for the pastor to talk to God for you. You can talk to God. You don't have to go and confess your sins to some priest. You can just confess them straight to God. You can have a relationship with God anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. There is no other thing that we need except to come straight to God. This is awesome. This is so good. The curtain is being torn. It's a picture of access to God is now open. It is a new way, a new family, a new start. The one who is forsaken is creating a new family and all are welcome. Anyone can come. So again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this includes you. You don't have to get your life all sorted before you can come to God. Any can come to God. If you read the book of Mark, all and any are coming to Jesus. And right here, he shows us someone who should not come. Verse 39, the first person who comes says, And when the centurion, that is a Roman guard who is a professional in executing crucifixions. This centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. And this man said, truly this man was the son of God. In the book of Mark, the first person to put their faith in this Jesus in this way is a Roman centurion who was watching over the entire crucifixion. And something about Jesus, watching this whole period, the way he's gone through all the trials, the way he's handled himself with Herod, the way he's handled himself with Pilate, the way he's handled himself with all the different people, being mocked, being spat on, being beaten, something there has revealed to him, oh man, he is who he said he was. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the whole World And Mark wants us to see, because Mark is writing this to not just the Jewish people. He's writing this to Jews and to non-Jews. And non-Jews, people don't believe that they could be welcomed into the family of God. They feel like they've got to do all of these things before they can even get in. And Mark's saying, listen, anyone can come in. Anyone with any background. This man has murdered so many people. And Mark's like, and he's in the new family of God. And I love it. He goes on to now show us other people who normally wouldn't be included in a list, and they're all women. So it says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, the younger one, and of Joseph, and of Salome. Again, when you, when you read the New Testament writers, they keep including people who they shouldn't include, which would actually not give credibility to their testimony. So by including women, 
in the story in an ancient document would actually be seen as something that is sort of invalidating and, and sort of lacking credibility in the story. And over and over again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just keep saying, listen, it was these women who were the first to see Jesus. It was these women who were the first to tell other people about Jesus. It was these women who went to the tomb and he wasn't there and the angel said, go and tell Peter about meeting us in Galilee. And everyone was like, why would you include that in the document when it's going to lead people to not give credibility to it? Why? Answer, because it's what happened. It's the truth. And so he's, he's including this centurion and he's like, and listen, he's not going to give us a whole lot of men's names. In fact, he's been telling us all the dudes kind of running back to mummy. Why? Because all the dudes ran to their mummy. They went home. They were scared. They fled. And Peter is, uh, Mark is like, listen, here's who was following Jesus. And later, love this, verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered with him. And there are also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. You remember we said a few weeks ago that Jesus told Peter, I'll see you in Galilee. Well, after you deny me multiple times, don't forget, when you, when you realize I'm, I'm the person who I said I am, I'm going to rise from the dead. Once you get that, Get to Galilee. In fact, some of the other accounts will tell us that these women then go and tell the disciples about Jesus' resurrection. And she, Mary, says to Peter, and Jesus says something about seeing you in Galilee? And Peter is a broken man. And then we see Peter's life completely radically change once he becomes convinced Jesus was who he says he was. That he was a king. And he was a gracious king who, when you deny me three times, I'll rescue you back home and I'll actually empower you and say, hey, I want you to lead the church like I said you would. And I want you to strengthen all of your brothers and sisters, please. Get to Galilee, gather the people, strengthen them, encourage them. The one who seems powerless is all-powerful, enacting his perfect plan, even though free human agents are doing free choices and making free plans. The one who seems like he cannot save himself, is by dying saving everyone, including me and you. This is good news. Now, this band come up, I want to read a little poem, not by Alanis Morissette, but by Don Carson. It says this. It says, On that wretched day the soldiers mocked him, raucous laughter in a barracks room, Howl the king, they sneered while spitting on him. Brutal beatings on this day of gloom. Though his crown was thorn, he was born a king. Holy brilliance, bathed in bleeding loss. All the soldiers blind to this stunning theme. Jesus reigning from a cursed cross. Awful weakness marks the battered God-man. Far too broken now to hoist the beam. Soldiers strip him bare and pound the nails in. Watching him hang there on the cruel tree. God's own temple down, he has been destroyed. Death's remains are laid in rock and sod. But the temple rises in God's wise ploy. Our great temple is the Son of God. Here's the one who says he cares for others, one who says he came to save the lost. How can we believe that he saves others when he cannot get off that bloody, not swear word, cross? Let him save himself, let him come down now, savage jeering at the king's disgrace. But by hanging, there is precisely how Christ saves others as the king of grace. 
draped in darkness, utterly rejected, crying, Why have you forsaken me? Jesus bears God's wrath alone, dejected, weeps that bitterest tears instead of me. And all the mockers cries, He has lost his trust, he's defeated by hypocrisy. But faith's resolve, Jesus knows he must do God's will and swallow death for me. Let's pray. God, we, we hear these words written by Mark and we are confronted with this truth. Will we follow in the example of the centurion and these incredible women who place their faith in you? God, will we trust that you truly are the king and that you're a good king? God, will we trust that you have proven time and time again and ultimately at the cross that you use the weak things of this world to enact your powerful plan in our lives? God, will we trust that though you were on the cross and it appeared like you couldn't save yourself, you were in fact staying there intentionally so that you could save us? God, will we trust that? Will we believe that personally? God, when we have moments where we fall short and we look at ourselves and we think, man, how could God love me? May we be reminded that you were forsaken so that you could bring us in and create this new family that would be founded on this thing called grace. That yes, we fall short and we fall short often. But our sin and our brokenness and our falling short does not compare to your grace and your love and your kindness towards us. We cannot outrun it. And God, would we be like the centurion who would say, Jesus truly is the Son of God and I will put my faith in him. Will we be like these women who would see you from a distance and say, we're going to follow him and we're going to minister to him and we're going to minister with him and we are following Jesus. And God, would you help us to celebrate the fact that as we'll look at next week, you do not stay dead, but you rise again, defeating Satan, sin, and death for us so that we could live for you. I pray this in your wonderful name. Everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.